0: Welcome to Wild and Exposed,
1: your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes,
0: Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in.
2: Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. Got myself, Ron Hayes in Wyoming, Mark Raycroft. Mark, where are you coming to us tonight from?
0: From home base in southern Ontario.
2: He's back, boys and girls. He's quit hiding. Yes, Uh, Jason Loftus, two weeks back. Jason coming to us from Salt Lake. How are you, Jason? I'm doing good.
3: And sunny Salt Lake. Well, warm Salt Lake. It's in the 70s today, which is just crazy. But yeah.
2: Hey, something crazy happened this weekend. Crazy insane. Jason Loftus was in an area and did not get the shot.
3: Uh-oh. yeah i missed it
2: that is pretty rare so go ahead spill the beans to everybody jason yeah. you just told I me. Made I, f- a... I feel bad for yeah. you but i don't because you always get the shot
3: right. <laughs> well i don't actually i don't the wolves have always been a you know a, a animal that i just can't seem to connect with the right way to get the images i have in my head um you know good close you know range type of images and anyways long story short they had my opportunity I decided I went up to the Tetons I decided to camp out for moose is what I went up there for had not heard and did not use my networking which is a lesson learned um, to find out what else was going on potentially and a pack of wolves had killed a young elk by Pacific Creek um, and it was about 50-60 yards right on the river so it would have been a really incredible opportunity um to photograph I think they I think somebody said there was eight or nine wolves or something in that you know right in that area might have been more but yeah so that's just the way it goes you know you you go out and you do these things you you know spend time and you you know I know better I should use my networking I knew there was going to be other people up in that area and a matter of fact it's funny I met Mark Payton while I was up there and uh, a friend of the show and a friend of ours and he <laughs> He got to see that encounter and actually got to have another incredible encounter that I won't ruin it. I'll let him post. You guys can go follow his stories and his posts and see what he posted. But um, he was in front of me on the moose and he ended up getting back in his car and driving away with a phone call. And I should have known (laughs) that that was a sign that something else was going on. And I should have just left and followed him. But anyways, live and learn. So yeah, Ron, I did not get the shot.
2: Well, I, am my heart is broken for you, buddy.
1: I know. I appreciate you.
3: <laughs>
0: feel the love guys. I feel
1: it. <laughs> right. <laughs> we should uh, do a little promo on our, our sponsor promo, which we mentioned in the last podcast, but just to reiterate, cause this promotion is going to go from now until the end of uh, the year so it'll be good for the holidays. Basically, what they're gonna do is give any wild and exposed listener 20% off of any Think Tank bag or any SKB hard case that they have in stock on the website. He said he couldn't do it with special order stuff, but he said that they intentionally overbought that kind of stuff when they did their buying season last year just because they knew the supply issues were gonna be difficult this year. So we should have plenty of stock on a plenty of different things. When I was talking to him on the phone, he was actually walking down the aisles because we were trying to come up with a cool promo. And I said, well, you know, I use the Think Tank airport security bag. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's right here. And so I know they've got that kind of stuff in stock. And that's like a $420 roller bag that is super awesome. I have three of them, and I use them in different configurations and use them all the time. They fit on a 737 on up. Actually, it'll fit in a, a little smaller jet, too in the overhead compartment so you know your equipment is safe but if you look at 20% off of that it's like 80 bucks a little bit over 80 bucks that's pretty significant little savings on on uh, a bag of that caliber so just know it's got to be in stock and then you it's wild and exposed listeners only and you have to use this promo code it's case 2021 so case two zero two one. one
2: Well, we've got a special guest tonight coming to us from Toronto, Ontario. Anand Iyer is coming to us from up. You live in Toronto proper, Anand, is that correct? Yes.
4: Yeah, I live downtown Toronto, like right in the heart of the city.
2: Well, we appreciate you joining us tonight. And you met Mark in the field, I believe, correct?
4: Uh, Yes. First first off, I just want to say, uh, glad to be here. Really nice to meet you guys in person. Yeah. And well visual like virtual person but uh yeah i uh i ran into mark in the field mark and i actually uh here and there we do like you know i message him on instagram here and there so we kind of knew each other a little bit that way but but uh i just you know we were both kind of going out to the canadian rockies at the same time and ironically enough we kind of bumped into each other on the field and i'm like hey there's that voice i always listen to (laughs) and uh you know i was surprised how tall you were to be honest Oh seven foot four yes yes
0: i just I just stopped playing for the Raptors two years ago, yeah, not quite, I'm only six feet, but uh still, it was great to meet you in the field and and uh absolutely had a lot of fun and hearing yeah, your stories time, that's it's what that's what spurred there. spurred this along was just meeting you, and then even in a brief period of time, you were so generous to record one of those shorts for the podcast, a question for the team. And then we just got chatting and it's like, wow. I I mean, look at Anand's Instagram, everybody. Obviously there'll be a link in the show notes on the website, but Anand A-N-A-N-D underscore I-Y-E-R. Anand I are on Instagram. So as we talk tonight, you'll be able to refer to there, but also there'll be some images in the show notes, but you'll see why i was keen to have anand on as well as as some of the stories really in, in the brief amount of time he's been pursuing wildlife photography he's really been super ambitious and the results show it but this any and tell us uh if you don't mind give us a little bit of history and and what you do and because that's quite interesting and how photography how you got started into
4: wildlife photography sure uh... <clears throat> Also, just want to say thanks for that. Uh, That's really nice for you to say, Mark. That really means a lot coming from you. Um, You complimented my height, so I, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Repay (laughs) the favor, right? Yeah. Um, How I got started? Well, what do I do? I work in advertising. So I work in a creative field. Uh, I've been in advertising for 11 years now. So basically, my, my work partner and I will get briefed on a project and from like various major brands and whatnot, whoever is a client of our agency at the point. And then we'll, we'll have to basically come up with ads, marketing campaigns, commercials, and all that. So I've been around the creative field a long time. Um, uh, so just kind of use that and like my experience there to transition into wildlife photography. Um, but basically how we got started in uh, wildlife photography is it kind of started with like a, a little bit of a health incident for me. So wildlife photography is kind of like a healing tool. Uh, As Mark knows, how we do out here in in Canada, we play a lot of hockey. So I was playing a lot of hockey. Uh, Long story short, ended up getting a bad concussion. And then, uh, you know, for a few months, I had to take off work. It was, you know, a lot of, like, struggles with symptoms and all that stuff. And I just needed something positive to kind of get out and do stuff. So I started taking this, like, just a little camera out and, like, taking photos. And I'm like, you know what? I've always loved animals growing up. So I'm like, you know, my goal was I want to take – my goal was to take a really good photo with swan. Like it was an odd goal, but it was like, okay. So I would search for ducks and swans and then, you know, randomly by fluke at a time, I took a half decent shot of a swan and I looked at it. I'm like, you know what? This is not bad. The angle's pretty good. It's kind of low. And that's what kind of hooked me. So since then I got hooked. And from there, it's like, okay, let's find more swans. Let's find more wildlife around the city. And then it's like, oh, you know what? Algonquin's only... Two and a half, three hours drive. Oil. Let's drive up there. Let's try to find some moose. And then, that escalated to okay. Let's go out west to the Rockies and find some more animals. That, and that's kind of how, I got hooked per se. And uh, yeah, and that's uh, four years later, four and a half years later. I'm here.
2: So have you been an outdoorsman all your life, or is is this something that kind of took you outdoors as a, a means of of therapy?
4: Um, a little bit of both. It. It. I was you no, know, not like an avid outdoorsman. I was more, you know, like I've been out west with my with my folks back before, and just for like hiking and stuff, but never for wildlife. Like this took it to a completely other level. Um, and yeah, and you're totally right. It is a very therapeutic thing, very meditative. I would say.
2: I've been amazed at how many guests we've had on recently um, that wildlife photography became their therapy or. Not just wildlife. We've had some landscape photographers on as well, and just reconnecting with nature. I think if everybody would do a little bit more of that, things would be a lot more peaceful.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's you know, I mean, I read I've read articles that being outdoor in nature is actually scientifically proven to reduce like anxiety and stress and depression and all that. So that's kind of where I took a little bit of cues from. Like, I mean, you know, I don't want to get too into the stories, but yeah, like I I did you know, have like depression and anxiety after the concussion. So it was it was really out of desperation that I needed something to get out. And this was kind of what helped. And when I found that it was really helping, like, you know, it kind of did two things. Like I loved animals. So that's one thing that I'm out there. And number two is actually helping me in my mind state and like really kind of bring me, like calm me down and stuff. So, yeah, it's been a healing tool and it's been great. Like I would recommend it to anyone who's having any sort of, any sort of problems or issues or anything, I think photography can be used as a healing tool. And I know it's kind of funny. It's like doctors should be giving prescriptions for like going out to shoot photos and stuff.
2: Agreed fully. Before we get into the stories that you had gotten into with Mark, uh, he said that you started basically with urban wildlife.
4: Yeah, I um, the urban wildlife actually started more after the pandemic hit. So... I, I was, uh, well, obviously, as we all know, once the pandemic hit, like we weren't traveling anywhere. There were lockdowns everywhere. So for me, I still wanted to see what I could do. And I was really interested in the juxtaposition of urban photog- wildlife photography because there's something interesting to me about the concrete jungle and seeing wildlife there. So that's how it started. And I started kind of going out. And I really lucked out where last summer – or last spring, I should say, where I found uh, a fox family like ten minutes from my condo. So for me, I would literally wake up early, early, super early every morning, go out there, s- try to find them, photograph them in their environment, and, and like you know, and then by the time like eight o'clock hits, I'm coming coming back home, shower, I'm ready to kind of work virtually again. So that was kind of my routine where I would go out in the morning to this local Fox family where they had their little den and, uh, just kind of tried to photograph them. And Jason, the, the, the photo you're talking about about, uh, the Fox coming back with the squirrels, like on the street, like that's, that's where it was. Like I kind of, that was a dad Fox and I kind of knew the routines and the routes he would take every morning and bring back food for the young ones. So there was either one or three ways he would come. So, I basically had a 33.33% chance that I would kind of see him coming back if I took if I went in one of those areas. That morning, I lucked out where he was coming back. He used to come sometimes. He's come back with like three or four squirrels. He, I have seen him with rats. I've seen him with pigeons. I've seen him with rabbits. I saw him with a downy woodpecker. I don't know how the heck he managed to catch a downy woodpecker, but he did. So very resourceful. These urban foxes. Um, that's kind of what I love about them too is the fact that you know, they, they're adaptable anywhere, you know, like you put them in the middle of downtown Toronto, where you wouldn't think an animal could survive, but they, they get by, like they're very adaptable. And that's why I kind of really was drawn to photographing them in, in like an urban setting. That'd be a great
3: little pet project to do too, right? I mean, we talked about having a project and you mentioned setting goals and how that can help with your healing process, but also it's just a great way to approach photography, you know, to maybe that's a great book, some project down the road, right? But um, yeah, I love the fact that you <laughs> applied yourself and the fact that you knew he had three routes and, you know, you put yourself in the right position to get the shot. And you guys got to go look at Anon's, Anand's page sorry, to uh, see that that photo. It's really neat. It's It's coming right at him. Um, low angle he got, you know, how many critters did he have? He had three or four, didn't he?
4: Yeah, I think he had a uh, three or four. Yeah. He had, I think he had uh, a rabbit and also two squirrels in his mouth. So maybe three a squirrel
3: and a rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a mouth full. I mean, these are not just, <laughs> you know, a little, a little bull and a mouse. I mean, he, yeah,
4: he was a very prolific, <laughs> he was providing well for his family. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah. He, he was a great provider. Um, and, uh, you know, Another thing that I kind of lucked out there was where the roots he would come back from, where the family relocated the den. It was kind of in a construction area, so it was a little fenced off. So technically, maybe I shouldn't have been there, but hey, you know, you kind of take your chances. Uh, But it it was a construction area, but there wasn't anything going on. But in the wall, uh, over time, people put a lot of like graffiti and like street art on the side of the building. So there was a lot of graffiti so that's another one of the photos where i like you said goal setting was i am like you know what i've gone so at this point it was like i'm two months in where i'm like you know what i've gotten way too many telephoto shots i like what else could i get and i'm like i need to ca- try to capture these guys in front of the graffiti and uh so basically i would set up shop with a wide angle it was like an 18 millimeter or something with a wide angle basically hoping that they would cross this path by the graffiti in the alley. And the interesting part was the wall, there was graffiti and then on the ground there were flowers growing, which were like purple. So it was a weird juxtaposition. And then to have a fox stroll by would just be like, okay, that would just make it. And then I really lucked out at a couple of times where he came by and I just snapped away and I, and I got the actual, I got the mom Fox coming by with, and the Fox was small in frame, wide angle with a huge wall full of graffiti and like these flowers, it looked, it was like an urban decay. Like I, you know, there's something interesting about it. The whole thing didn't make any sense, but it did make sense. So that's what was cool about it.
0: I think it's awesome that you're capturing wildlife in these urban centers. It shows how adaptable these species are. And I mean, there's so many layers to this that interest me. The fact that you can document them that way, but it's, it's so, if I, if I dare say, like, not geo-documentation, to say, you know what, these animals are surviving, and in some cases, thriving in these huge urban centers. And to show that with that wall of graffiti, I I, I visualized the picture, I've seen it on your Instagram, it is fantastic to show this beautiful wild animal thriving, doing well in the city. Obviously, it's not an ideal circumstance for it, but it's making it work. and it, And your choice to do that during the pandemic is inspirational, but I also feel for some of our audience that do live in large cities and have a challenge on a, maybe a regular basis to, to escape the perimeters of the city, there are subjects you can find and pursue and, and get fantastic results from like you've done. I, I'm really pleased that this was the start of the podcast to come up with this story. I think it's quite inspirational because most of our population live in large urban centers.
4: Yeah, that's true. I appreciate you saying that, Mark. Yeah, you know, I think I think I've heard a lot of people talk about, oh, you know what? If if the critter, if there is a road in there, I'm not taking a picture to me. That doesn't make that doesn't make much sense to me. It's like, hey, like this just shows another way, like these animals could survive. Like, you know, if the fox is crossing the road, like that's an awesome picture to have. I have a picture of the fox curled up and sleeping. And there's a major highway going on the side and there's a car passing by and it's just curled up sleeping. So it's kind of like this fox doesn't care. There's a highway like it's made this place its home. So for me, it's like it doesn't have to be in the wild. It could be anywhere. I just want to capture some sort of behavior or some sort of, uh, you know, just something different, you know. And I think that kind of stems from the fact that I work in advertising where like, like, you know, we always have to try to come up with original ideas. It has to be different. Like you're trying to do something different. So that I've kind of taken that into wildlife where it's like, well, what can I do to you know, make my photos stand out? And these are just little things you kind of pick up over time where I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. Like show this, show that, like show the wall. Like, you know, show this streetlight. Who cares? Like it, it, it doesn't ruin the image to me. It actually tells a story better.
2: Well, one of the things that I was g I was gonna say or comment on was that we talk about often, you know, photograph right in your backyard. If you find something that an opportunity that you've got, that's close, that you can access a lot, you know, or often and consistently spend some time there because you're going to get things that other people don't get. You're going to start to see things that other people don't see. And you know, that graffiti shot, I was just looking at it on your Instagram. It kind of reminds me of that uh, Will Smith movie. I don't remember what the name of it was. Where I was, am legend. I am a legend. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how the, the wildlife adapted to living in the urban area that escaped from the zoo after, you know, whatever happened, the apocalypse. Um, but that's that's kind of what it reminds me of a little bit, but it tells a story of their, their life cycle. I mean, it's uh, y- your comment about, man-made objects or man-made quote unquote habitat being in the shot and not taking it. It doesn't tell the story of that family's life for sure. I had a a few years back had the opportunity to photograph a family of Bobcats that they stayed right on a railroad, you know, right on the the rail basically behind the bridges and the kids played in the, in the train, that kind of thing. I mean, it, it just tells their story. And to be able to document over time uh, a Fox family story, I think is a great project to get started with.
0: We all thrive in being in the wilderness, as far as our passions as wildlife photographers and documenting animals' lives and what we consider to be nature, right? But these cities are a fact that they're part of planet earth and animals of all sorts, from microbes to mammals to birds, Either live in or have to navigate these concrete, we call them concrete jungles. So, uh, you know, as, as part of conservation photography, there's a huge movement in that right now, and documenting the lives, whether it's struggles or successes, of these species is really quite relevant at this time. And 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 so I think it's fantastic, and and more people should do it for fun, even right. But and just and it opens one's eye. When you look out there and you start paying attention, it can be surprising how many species are in those areas.
4: That's so true. Like it's not, you know, before the pandemic, before my hand wasn't forced to go look in the cities where it's just like, okay, I'm going to go up to Algonquin, right? Mark, you know, Algonquin's a beautiful place to go. Love it. And and like you're out in the wilderness. Yeah, exactly. But, but it's one of those things where because of the pandemic, you're forced, but also, hey, yeah, I could have chosen to take shots of the city or something. But I'm like, you know what? I love wildlife too much. But like, the, finding the fox family was just such a huge thing. Like that really spurred everything, and then, uh, yeah, it kind of led to a whole series of events where that I wasn't expecting it to go down that path. You know, so it's like the first time I saw it, I was like, oh my god, foxes! I love foxes. Uh, kids, like you're just taking photos with telephotos all day, and then it's just like, okay. There's a lot greater thing story to be told here, where I think that luxury came from the fact that A, I was lucky to be 10 minutes away, and B, just going out there every morning, where you you put yourself in that situation more often than not.
3: So, so real quick, I just have a question for you because yeah, I've spent some time photographing foxes, um, not in an urban environment, but they will if they get pressured and if they feel like there's an issue or danger. You mentioned that they relocated their den, yeah um, were you just spending enough time with them that you knew because there's times when you can just they'll move it far enough that you'll you you can not find them again, no, you know, the, in that the, same area, so
4: yeah, this one was interesting. I mean that's one of the benefits of urban wildlife is they're so used to people and like uh, like foot traffic and stuff like that where urban foxes, in my experience, don't bat an eye with people. It's very rare for urban foxes where they will see you and they will just like not want a piece of your run like i've seen the urban foxes walk right by people sometimes and like this fox would hunt in the morning and there were construction workers down the street and he would just be coming back with like food for the family so the relocation i think wasn't uh and the relocation only happened uh it was like it relocated like 20 meters away so it wasn't even that far so i don't know why it relocated but there must have been some reason why they relocated i think maybe they just kind of liked it underneath the, the bridge of the highway where they relocated down to the second time it might've, you know, cause there were, there were some rodents down there. So it's probably might be closer to just feeding and stuff like that. So I don't know. Uh,
3: yeah. but yeah, And as the kids started to learn how to hunt and stuff like that. Exactly.
4: Yeah. The kids were running around down there and stuff. So yeah, exactly. The kids were hunting down there after a couple of months and playing around there down there. And uh, yeah, like, other foxes I've had experiences with out either in Eastern Canada or out West where, and in, even the Algonquin, the Algonquins especially like they, even like a hundred meters away, they'll see you sometimes they're very skittish. So I think it's just, it, it's their, whatever they're used to. In, and in Toronto, they're just used to people and stuff, but they're very good at hiding out people. But I think, you know, t- such a big city with close to like, four million people or whatever is here is like they're going to see people on a daily basis and they're just kind of used to it and they know humans are not threats to them so you know they're they're very smart that's why i like them they're just to me such so adaptable and just super smart that's a
3: great story i'm sorry i keep going on about it but (laughs) it's really cool and you've got a lot of really neat images in there of them in that urban environment and and a lot of good storytelling images. So yeah, kudos to you. That's a neat project.
4: Thank you. One more story, if you, if you, if I may, about the urban foxes, um, the, one of the coolest things that happened to me there was in that area that was kind of locked off with the graffiti. Um, one morning I was just sitting there and I wasn't even like photographing them. I was just kind of taking a little break and the, the mom and dad came up from underneath the bridge and they were in that area with the, the graffiti. And they're so used to me at this point where they don't, they don't perceive me as a threat or anything at all. Where I think there's something interesting where they kind of just don't pay attention to you. And they were running around me and all down the street, like like two dogs in a dog park. Like, and I just sat there and just kind of took it all in. And I took a couple of photos of them kind of like play fighting with the graffiti in the background, which was kind of interesting. But other than that, it was kind of one of those things where this is such a cool moment. I just want to take it all in. Like... It's it's in my memory bank, and that's good enough for me because I just want to witness this with my eyes. So they were running around me like dogs. Like it was crazy. Like they were going so fast, I couldn't believe it.
3: That's awesome. I, I, th- <laughs> I, th- I
4: think they were trying to get away from the kids for a little bit. They were tired of babysitting them or something, you know. <laughs> kids can Gate be night. handful. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> so you, then you scroll through your feed, and all of a sudden you're met with a penguin.
4: Oh yeah. You see, you scroll way down the feed. That's right. So, so that was Toronto in Waterfront. South Africa. Yeah, th- exactly. That was in South Africa. And you know, I got really lucky because that I went down there to actually shoot a commercial that we were shooting. So we were shooting that in around Cape town and it was for a charity organization called the right to play. So we were doing some shooting down there and, and, uh, we had some downtime, so it's like, hey, we know they're the Boulder, the Boulder Beach penguins. So let's go check them out. So me and a, and a few coworkers just kind of drove down there, and they're literally all over the place. And that photo there is pretty funny because it, it's a picture of one of the penguins throwing up, and I just luckily caught it with half that threw up in the air, and the other one looking at it like, sh- like shaking his head. So it, it's, it's one of those weird photos, but yeah. So now it's a story there, like it, it was. Sounds all, like yeah, marketing potential. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. After a long night, you know, the uh, the partner is not too happy after the long night. <laughs>
3: well, then you keep scrolling, and there's. Sorry, go ahead, Ron. No, before no. we leave that.
2: No, no, I was going to move on. So, go ahead and finish. Well, I was just
3: going to say we keep scrolling, and you see some really cool. Um, muskox images right um,
4: <laughs> that is where yeah, it's so going actually <laughs> there you go you guys think getting away. wilder and wilder
0: i think i think it right. warrants <laughs> you know an, an urban wildlife we could do the whole podcast on that for just being so different but anand's experiences this is about to get wild people there's wait till you hear these stories i i they stopped me in my tracks when we were in the rockies a couple of these so go for it my friend
4: Alright. So the muskox actually No pressure.
0: I, it was just moving. I don't mean it like you've got oh, yeah, you got to Oh yeah, yeah, no pressure. A fantastic at all, story. No, no, but just, <laughs> just how you did this was, was fantastic. Was like I'd love to have that
4: experience. The the muskox is something where I'm like, I gotta go see these prehistoric beasts because they've been around since a woolly mammoth. And like to just be in the presence of like creatures that have been around since that age kind of really uh, kind, of, kind of spoke to me a bit at that point. And I'm like, you know what? I'm th- and I had been to Norway a few years before that. Uh, so for me, I'm like, okay, I love Norway. It's one of my favorite places to go. But I'd never been to this area uh, for the Muskox. So kind of researched into it, kind of booked tickets and went down. Um, I, hi- I hired a guide. Uh, it- I want to give him a shout out because they were great. They were called uh, Opdal Safari. So my guide, Johan, who owns it, he uh he kind of took me took me up there so it was just him and i and we drive down to the i, I don't want to pronounce it wrong i, I don't want to offend anybody it's called that uh, dovel Dovre mountain range i believe and it's a tundra region in norway where there are a bunch of the the pre- famous prehistoric muskox that norway's muskox are there there's also um reindeer and arctic fox, but I wasn't lucky enough to see the reindeer or the arctic fox. But, um, so you drive down and you're in the valleys driving down. It's, it's in mid-March, so it's super cold, obviously, right? And the way you look for them is you look, you look up in the mountains and it's all snow and ice, and you're just basically looking for little brown spots, like little rocks. So his running joke was a lot of people, when they see rocks... They'd be like, oh, muskox. But it's like, no, that's not a muskox. That's a musk rock. Because like, it's like, you just you just saw a rock. Because it's hard to tell the difference. They kind of look the same when it's like a kilometer or two away when you're looking at the top of a peak. But he's, he's amazing at spotting them, right? So he's been doing this for like 20, 30 years. And he's like, oh, look, look up there. And I'm like, oh, yeah, up at the mountaintop, I see it. He's like, see those two little dots? I'm like, yeah. He's like, that's where we're going. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm like, that's going to be a long journey up. So... You know, we get geared up, uh, we put on the, you know, uh, crampons and also uh, uh, snowshoes with huge like spikes because not only are you going on like huge like piles of snow and huge like drifts of snow, it's it's like frozen ice too when you're climbing these mountains so you need all the support and grip you can get. Um, Basically, I mean, it was a pretty amazing adventure just to kind of get up there in a sense because it's a pretty big workout. You're carrying all your gear. Uh, it's cold, and your fingers are freezing, but it, you're so hot inside your jacket, so it's like a weird fusion of like, I want to take my jacket off. It's like, no, my fingers are cold, and it's just like uh, like just a weird mix. And maybe like a few hours of climbing, and we're close, and we kind of get up over the valley, and then the wind is blowing. We're in, we're in a windstorm right now, so imagine everything's white because the mountains are white full of snow and ice and there's wind going and we kind of go up and we, I l- literally lock eyes with a muskox and it was, it was a bull muskox and you see their wolves blowing in the wind and it's just kind of surreal. And at that point my only, th- like none of the cold mattered anymore. You know, when you get that ad- adrenaline going, when you gotta see stuff, it's just like nothing matters. Like that, that kind of took over at that moment and he's just like, okay, He's like, I see, I see how you feel. I'm going to go sit down and enjoy his coffee. So he just kind of sat down because he knows that I'm just like photographers will get in that zone and they'll kind of just take photos. He laid down parameters of like, you know, you don't get too close. There's a distance like legally you could get to them. So, you know, all that, all those rules are abided by. So you need obviously a long telephoto. But, um, you know, I was just lucky that it was a windstorm and it was all white. So taking photos of them, it kind of looks surreal because in, in some of the photos I got, it just looks like a musk ox in white and pure white. And it's a very graphic look. And for me, I love that. Cause like I said, I work in advertising. There's a lot of like creative aesthetics and like, looks. So like I, I, my photos have a very clean look and I love having that very like graphic kind of look to it and, and like artsy look to it. So yeah, the, we get up to the musk ox and we take a bunch of photos and then, you know, he offers to use some like Norwegian like delicacies and stuff and you can eat up in the mountain and uh, which is always a treat. And um, you could also spend the night there where you put uh, like he carries everything. He's he was like a 45, 50 year old man. And I thought I was carrying a bunch of stuff with my camera equipment. He's carrying, you know, he's carrying emergency equipment. He's carrying extra pair of like snowshoes. He's got a tent He's got water, food, everything. So this guy was super fit, Johan, going up and down these like mountains all the time, like guiding people. So yeah, it's a testament to testament to that guy. Uh, but yeah, so you could set up the tent, you could you could spend the night there. Uh, not lucky enough to see the stars that night. It was cloudy. Cause I've seen pictures of people doing this where you could take photos of your of your little tent with the wind blowing, but you have like a beautiful nightscape, like star stuff at night. And you could wake up in the morning and you get the beautiful like pinkish light and you could photograph uh, the muskox in the morning too. But, you know, as the roulette wheel has it, like it was cloudy, so I didn't get that pink hue, but you know, you're literally waking up and looking at like prehistoric beasts. So you can't complain too much there <laughs> about the weather or about the light or anything at that point.
3: So, so did I get that right? Did you stay up on the mountain with him
4: that night? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's cool. Yeah. yeah. You could do that. Yeah, he gives you that option to do that.
0: What was that like? Like tell us a little bit about the preparation given what was you said it was freezing cold. What was the temperature approximately and then just maybe take us through the steps of that overnight experience so that if somebody was dreaming of doing it, what that would be like, or just for us vicariously living through your experience right now?
4: Yeah, I would say the temperature was fluctuating anywhere from minus 5 to minus 10 windy. Uh, and that's, uh, that's degrees uh, Celsius. Celsius. So I'm not sure what the, what the translation is at to Fahrenheit, but I mean, basically it was pretty cold. But I think what was, I'd never experienced it, but what's amazing is he digs, he'll dig holes in the snow to put the tent. So... And you're basically you're basically fortress blocked off by big snow banks that he's dug. So without the wind, actually, it's not that bad, like and uh, the sleeping bags and everything are pretty heavy. So you're actually not bad at all. It's my fingers and toes run very cold compared to other people. So that for me, that's always a problem, regardless of like like decent cold or too cold. So that was one thing I had to manage. But I think for most people who don't have the fingers and toes issue, it should be fine. But uh, no, it's super quiet. It's, it's actually like, you know, when you camp out, it's, let's say for Algonquin, you're hearing like insects and things like that and like grasshoppers and you don't hear anything Fox. like it's just wind. Moons. It's just eerie quiet when the wind stops. And yeah, it, it's actually very surreal.
2: How much of your travel now do you find that you do specifically for wildlife? Or, or is it more for work and the wildlife is just a positive byproduct?
4: No, 100% wildlife. <laughs> every, every trip I've taken uh, over the last little while has been wildlife. I mean, hey, I'm, I'm also single, so I don't, you know, for me, I can always kind of do what I want in my trip. So, you know, obviously, if I, was, if I was going with friends or a significant other or something, there's obviously more mutual planning. But for me, I'm in a situation where uh, every trip I take, I'm going there for the intent of photographing wildlife and everything revolves around it. That
2: was a slick advertisement right there. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's By like, the way,
2: <laughs> just,
0: little heart gifts going up on the screen. Yeah, I love it. I love there it. There you go. <laughs> yeah.
4: So, add a
3: matchmaker that. tour resume. That's right.
4: Wild
0: and exposed. Uh, yeah, matchmaking opportunities. That's cool. There's another tale coming up that is equally thrilling, but just out of curiosity, personally, approximately how many muskox were in the group that you encountered and were able to photograph?
4: Oh boy, thirty-ish. Um, there was a oh, lot. Significant. Wow. There was significant. Yeah, the first day, the first day with the, the windstorm and everything, there was only two or three bulls up there, so like that. But the next morning, waking up. I think the herd had come in and and the bull there's a few bulls and there was like a lot of females and a lot of little cute young ones. And they're just adorable to look at because they have these blonde highlights and they look so goofy. So there was a bunch of a bunch of little guys and gals in there where it it was pretty neat to see the big moms like nuzzling them and stuff. So yeah, it was a pretty big herd, I would say. And they're all pretty chill. They're all pretty chill. Like you uh, keep your distance and, and like you know, like anything, you give them respect, and they kind of, you know, live their life as like you're not. Behave naturally. Them. Yeah. And the the bulls, I think the bulls were staying around the edges of. They were kind of formed in a circle, and the bulls slept on the edges. And one of the bulls, I kid you not, was sleeping, and it felt like an earthquake. But it was like snoring or grunting. And I literally was like, "What just happened?" And it felt like the ground shaking. And it was just a bull kind of making some like grunting noises, like sleeping. It's insane.
0: these guys. See, you know, you're in the right place for wildlife photography experience when you have something like that happen, right? You're just oh my God, relaxing yeah. enough and these magnificent beasts are nearby and you can hear them snoring. I mean, how really that's super cool.
2: There is another story. And, and my question before you get to this, another story that Mark shared with us. Uh, before you get to this was this on the same trip or did you take another trip to norway
4: no this was my first trip this was the first time i've been to norway this was uh january 2016 this was actually before i even started photographing so like i I was just there to experience that yeah i just had a i just had a dinky little gopro with me so you know it's just Mm -hmm. bad footage underwater and stuff but yeah so i I wish i was photographing back then but what are you going to do it's still a great life experience
0: some people use Gopro's all the time. Action cameras, you know, part of the kit, but
4: but uh so this was in the Arctic Circle in Norway where I mean, growing up I was a huge fan of orcas and whales and and that uh and I was really drawn to them and I'd seen that in in the Arctic Circle in Norway and you know by Tromso you, you you get to this place called Tromso. It's a little like the northernmost Arctic town or like the biggest Arctic town in, in Norway. And from there you take a little pond hopper into some of the little islands that are around there, the little uh fishing villages. So we went to a place called Andenes, And basically you uh like orcas come every like January, December, January, and they come after the the herring that come there. Like the massive millions of herring that come. So the orcas obviously follow the food source. So they come over there and I had the opportunity to uh, basically snorkel and, and like free dive with the orcas there. And in January. there are orcas, but in January. Yes, the... That's, that's the
0: setup. You've got to, you've got to tell <laughs> us about the preparation for that when, you, so, when yeah. you get to it. No rush.
4: Yeah. yeah. So it's in January. Um, there's orcas, but also they're, because of the herring, they're humpbacks. And there's fin whales, so I was lucky to see all three of them. But I must have seen, in the three days I did it, probably a hundred something orcas, and and like I've and one day I saw maybe like 20, 30 fin whales and a handful of humpbacks. But you're basically in in a in a dinghy, I guess, or or one of those boat like little dinghy boats, and then like. Z- Zodiac, thank you, thank you, Mark. That's exactly the word I was looking for. So to get prepared, because it's January, you're, you're geared up where you have base layer, you have mid-layer, and you have like another thermal layer, and then you put on the dry suits. So the dry suit, for me, kept everything warm. It's actually kind of hot underneath there when you're actually in the water. But like I said, I have the problem with, uh, with my fingers, where the fingers were getting cold and the toes were getting cold but uh the, they they had to keep pouring keep pouring hot water into my gloves cuz my hands almost felt like they were getting frostbite at one point but the craziest part is it's cold you get out there and then you just kind of leave your boat and then you and then our our guy our guide there's a pot of like five or six orcas just swimming and he's like okay get into the water so you kind of get in the water and there's a splash could could I
0: just Yep. ask a question. When I mean, I'd love this idea. We And I won't tell our story. There's been times I've wanted to jump in the water. But when somebody tells you on your first trip in the ocean and and it's winter and it's it's cold like this, there are the orcas, jump in with them. What's your mind doing? It's like, okay, yeah, I'll jump in with them. I mean, it's certainly a thrill, but was there any anxiety or apprehension about that idea?
4: You know what's funny? Not at all. Because... I I just know that orcas are like sentient beings and like they're very intelligent and historically there have been only like one or two attacks on humans in the wild and they've been like accidental attacks where they've let go when they realize it's a human. So something about I think whales and dolphins and the human relationship where I don't know what it is but they seem to just look at us in a different way, not as predator, not as prey and they're kind of very like gentle around us, especially when you see people who go to Dominican who swim with humpbacks, like the humpbacks are very gentle around them and they swim gingerly as opposed to when you see them normally, they can whip around and stuff. But but uh, anyway, yeah. So to your question was I apprehensive. No. Uh, the second day, ironically enough, was I was more apprehensive than the first day. So I don't know if the adrenaline got to me the first day where I was just going into the water, like wasn't even thinking about it where the second day was happening, I'm like, oh, wait, I'm actually doing this. Like, what am I doing? But, you know, and then you have a little bit of those thoughts, but they kind of go away quickly. But you dive in, it's, you know, at this point in January up there in the Arctic, you only have, like, three hours of sun, and the sun doesn't even come above, like, the ground. It kind of stays at, like, a horizon level. So there's not much light. So you jump in, and the ocean's very dark. And then... When you jump in and your ears plunge, all the noise of all the, the, the wind and everything from up top of the water goes away and you just hear underneath the water and you can hear the orcas vocalizing getting closer. And then you just see black and white spots from far and it's just almost surreal. And then they come close and you're like, whoa, it's, they're looking right at you. They look at you right in the eye. The first time I jumped in, they swam by me. They were vocalizing and then they, they kind of dove, two of them underneath me and just swam and just kept going so it was a very surreal experience i mean i have this on gopro like i have it recorded i'm so glad for that so it's amazing and but i have it at in my memory too and over the next couple of days saw a bunch of orcas a bunch of pods so you dive in and then you kind of just wait around if they approach you perfect if not it's fine but a lot of times they kind of be on their merry way sometimes they'll get curious and come by you i had a little juvenile orca Swim back, leave its pod, come around, check me out, kind of go back, and then the matriarch, I guess, was keeping an eye just to see what was going on, and the matriarch hung back to just make sure everything was cool, which was it was really cool witnessing that because it's like, oh, you know what? The matriarch, you know, is just keeping an eye on the young one who was curious to come by and check out a few of us who are on the water and and like when the young one swam away, I, I mean, I, the matriarch also like looked at us and you could feel the echolocation. like they it, they were pinging me and you kind of feel it and i can't explain it it, it just felt it, it felt strange but like i'm like oh i think they're actually like echolocating me right now and then like once they figure out you're nobody and you're just like this little tiny human in the water they just go on, on their merry way
0: i mean stop and feel that for a moment think about that i mean it I, I always tell stories too quickly. You've been doing a fantastic job, but just to, for our audience to think about what that would be like to be in the water—you can see things. It's a dark ocean, though. It's cold. You have the, these magnificent beings come up to you and do this echolocation on you. I mean, how how doesn't doesn't get much more personal, really, or moving?
4: Yeah, it was unbelievable. It's—I mean, I you're very you're very like. I don't want to say emotional, but you're kind of choked up. You're like, wow, this, they just kind of, you know, they just looked at you. They just recognize you and they just like accept you as you are there. And they just kind of go on their merry way. And, you know, there's so much computing in their head at that point because, you know, their brains are pretty like advanced, you know what I mean? Like they're one of the smartest uh, kind of beings in the world. So, you know, they're computing what's going on. And it was just kind of really like a, like a really moving moment, you know?
0: Their brains are so much larger than ours. I just can't help but just wonder what, how they perceive things, how they think, are they that much more intelligent, but just living in a, in a different medium. And and your experience, unlike being on the Zodiac or on the boat, seeing the one by, but being in the water, under the water, in their world where our senses are somewhat limited from what we're used to, right? But we have our vision and what our body can feel, that's just really so much more intimate and, and amazing. And, and, but yeah, I, I love just thinking about, and I wish there was a way, I mean, just fantasizing just to gauge their intelligence or their, or their thoughts, just given this, the the size of their brain.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think it's like when you read about some of the things they do and how they raise their young and the matriarch stays with the the pot and they all kind of look after each other. Like it's it's pretty amazing how they don't have, you know, like some animals will, you know, most animals, probably the youngs move on orcas, they stick together for life. I believe where the, the pod just keeps growing and growing. So like, and the family just keeps getting bigger. The other thing too, is in, in, uh, in that same trip uh, was I mentioned fin whales, which are the second biggest uh, mammal on earth next to the blue whale. So, Uh, One of the days where we didn't see too many orcas, but we saw a whole bunch of fin whales and some humpbacks, and we were in the Zodiac just floating in the rough sea in the middle, and all around us, anywhere you look, north, south, east, west, there were just spouts like everywhere from fin whales going up, and like, I, I don't know who said this, but it's like, it felt like we were in, like, whale soup. Like, anywhere you look, like, literally, it was just whales everywhere. And it was pretty – that was surreal, too. But we didn't get in the water then because the fin whales, they were like torpedoes just swimming so fast, and it just wasn't safe to get in in case you get clipped or something. It's just not wise. But in the Zodiac, just observing that was pretty pretty insane.
2: I think it's important to point out that the uh, Marine Mammal Act is a North American protection and you are allowed to get in the water around marine mammals in in norway and and in other parts of the in other parts of the world even southern north america you can get in the water with with whales it's so it's a it's different protection than than what we associate with here in you know the us and canada where you're not allowed to go within 100 yards or that kind of thing so it's one of the areas where you can do this and i i think if i'm not mistaken i believe norway was the first area where people went to swim with the orcas so i my, believe so yeah my question specific about that trip were you guys did you stay on the surface or did you yes. were you able to submerge and
4: oh 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 sorry I, I i thought you were asking if i stayed on a boat overnight on a boat versus like, Oh online. no. no Sorry. Um, uh Yeah. You submerge, but the, the, the wetsuits are pretty bulky. So it's, it's really hard to move around too much. So you're kind of, mm. you're kind of doing your best, but like you submerge a bit, but you're not going down. Like you have a dry suit and with fins, like you're not free diving 10, 20 feet. Uh, you're right. probably staying like five foot and above.
0: I just wanted to clarify for those, was it two nights then that you spent on the boat as well? And so is it far enough out at sea that, that you're not near the islands, like not within sight? Or is this oh, just on the boat near the coast? How did that, what was uh, that experience that, like?
4: Actually, I didn't stay on, I stayed on land for three nights. Okay. And so every morning you'd wake up and you'd go meet up at the at the base camp. Okay. And then everyone would set up and kind of just take the take the zodiacs and go, yeah. Just basically, oh, wow. whatever the sunlight cool. allows, you kind of out there and you come back, yeah.
0: Oh, so it was all Zodiac based, not from a ship. Yeah. You would just go from shore. Oh, that's cool.
4: From shore, yeah. That's so cool. no, no transferring and all that stuff, yeah. They were very close to land. It was in this little fishing village. So you probably get on the Zodiac and maybe, um, maybe like 10, 20 minutes out into, into sea, you see them.
2: That's awesome. That'd be a, that'd be a dream trip for me. I know we've, had, we've got a, a friend of the podcast, uh, Jeanette, moved to Norway from um, B.C. And she oh. moved over there with another guest of the podcast, Sven. And uh, the images that she's been capturing are just incredible. And, of course, you know, it's all fresh. When you see wildlife from a different part of the world, it's all fresh. It's not like going out for us and seeing thousands and thousands of deer you know, just in one day, it's, everything's new. And I think that would be, yeah. that would be exciting. It, it kind of rekindles some of that, um, excitement that you had when you were a kid kind of thing.
4: Yeah. Norway to me, I mean, Hey, I, I love Canada and I think like the Canadian Rockies is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Norway's up there. Like Norway's to me up there in it. it It's so beautiful it's amazing uh the people are super friendly and of course a lot of wildlife and marine life and it it's got i mean it's got i mean i i did other stuff besides wildlife too because i was going so far out where i'm like okay my main thing is wildlife i'm gonna get get this done so with the muskox i went to this area did what i had to do and then i went to a little uh just a little charming little town called trondheim after that where I spent a few days just walking around, taking in the local sites, taking in the culture and stuff. So it's one of those things where I think, you know, if I'm somewhere within Canada, I'll do strictly wildlife and then I'll be back. But in Norway, you're going so far out, you might as well experience some of the, like the local, like the local feel and like what the country's all about and their culture and everything. And that, that's a big thing for me too.
2: When I think of going to Iceland, you know, it's one of those places where you can go to consistently photograph the aurora that is one thing that everybody comes back with is just the people are just great. And, you know, a lot like the rural U S not, not like the urban U S but a lot like the rural U S where everybody's friendly. Everybody says hello. And you know, they're, they're warm welcoming and that's New Zealand was the same way, but I love to visit places, you know, around the globe that I haven't been before. And, and see that you know that there are good good people everywhere, and enjoy the sights. But so, what uh, what is your favorite? Well, actually, let's go back. Jason knows what's. <laughs> I know what ahead. you're gonna ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, outside of what you've just talked about, because those are some pretty incredible experiences, what would be your favorite outdoor experience?
4: Oh, outside of those, I guess, it. well, if you didn't put those stipulations, I would probably say the, the orcas were probably that, even though I wasn't photographing, like it didn't even matter. Like that was definitely number one. But outside of that, I would say, um, you know, th- this might sound like a little bit of a generic answer, but to be honest, any time I'm around foxes, to me, that's just, that's just the best. Like any, like not one time. I mean, I could probably say when I, when I, with that fox family last summer was great, but I just love foxes where anytime I, I feel like I've been lucky enough to be around them or shoot them, I just take that as like, okay, this is great. Like I feel, I feel like really like blessed to have experienced that. So probably an odd answer considering people probably have like all sorts of great stuff. But to me, it's as simple as foxes. And you know, if you ask me the question, if you could only shoot one, critter for the rest of your life and nothing else the answer would be easy it would just be i would go with red the red fox were
2: you disappointed you didn't get to photograph uh the arctic fox
4: yeah yeah i was um but not too disappointed because you know obviously the muskox, but it's uh it's definitely on my list and i think i mean i think there are a few places i know i know canada there's some places in the arctic uh and in Norway and Svalbard and Iceland too. But, you know, maybe one day I'll have to dedicate a trip to find the Arctic Fox because they look pretty charming as well.
3: I love that choice. I mean, you're right. A lot of people would say, you know, like me, it's it's often elk or mule deer, you know, and I know Ron is, his heart's at the ocean. Um, you know, my, or Mark is, I Puffins. would have to say moose and caribou. Puffins. Right. <sighs> Puffins, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> But to know to choose the foxes and to to choose it based, I would imagine because of just the incredible experiences you've had with this during the pandemic and making the most of a situation and having those, you know, those urban foxes to focus on and spend time with, you know, I, I just, I like that choice. I think that's, that's really neat. So
2: yeah, my heart's at the ocean, but my butt's in Wyoming. So swift fox are definitely one of my favorites too. I love to spend time with the swift fox. They're They're so social and most of the time you know people see a fox it's it's by itself but if you spend time with them you get to see all those crazy behaviors and see just how social and vocal and communicative that they are i think that's a word yeah communicative
4: communicative communicative (laughs) Communicative. there you go but no ron (laughs) i'm glad you brought that up because that was something i was going to bring up too because i i do remember hearing you talk about this with foxes and i'm sure Yes, there are different species of fox, but I think they, they might have a lot of similar tendencies. So, like, spending mm-hmm. time with the swift fox family, we probably experience very similar kind of, like, behavioral kind of, like, family bonds and ties and stuff, right? They are very For vocal. Sure. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. the thing. When you just sit down and observe, like, them, they're, they're very charming. I just find them very charming.
2: Yeah, I would say the same thing. I I think there are a lot of similarities. I haven't spent honestly as much time around red fox as i have with swift fox but i know in the times that i have you see you know those basic behavioral traits uh that are that are common to both but there are definitely differences so if you ever get to wyoming come down photograph swift fox with us
4: i would love that what wyoming is sort of on the list It it, it, it is yeah the the whole like Wyoming Jackson Hole area—it seems pretty awesome for moose too. I see a lot of people with putting up moose pictures all over the place down there. Mm-hmm. Is it that easy, or or they just make it look like that?
3: <laughs> no, it is not that easy. It's, I'm just, right. it's pretty easy. It's easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you come down, man. We'd love to have you come down. We'd show you around, no problem. I have a friend that knows where some Swiss foxes are too, and he's told me to. He keeps telling me I can come photograph, but I haven't had the chance to do that yet. So, you know, I may have just invited somebody else to go too. And just, you
4: know, Man, I'm still
3: yet to have that encounter. So,
2: <laughs> you what? Oh.
4: <laughs> well, this just got awkward. <laughs> <I'm> oh, <not joking. laughs> well, it's not awkward right, at yeah. all. No, I'm having fun watching awkward. this. No, they're no, yeah. no, no. I'm just joking. <laughs> I
2: wasn't even paying attention. So, I have so a, what's... I have a, go ahead. Oh, sorry,
4: go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just um, going to say,
2: what's next?
4: Uh, what's next? Um, I still have a few vacation day, days left for to the end of the year. So in a couple of weeks, I'm doing like a little mini trip where I'm taking Thursday, Friday off. So flying out from here and going out to the Canadian Rockies from Thursday morning and I'll be back landing in Toronto Sunday around midnight. So I know Monday for work, I'm going to be... Brutally tired, but it'll be worth it. That's my kind of trip,
3: baby. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sounds exactly like Jason's yeah. trips. <laughs> what were you gonna ask? And then you had uh, did you have a question or something else you wanted
4: to Yeah, just a question just a question on I know we haven't touched on gear, which we all love to talk about. Um, uh, all you guys have the R five, right? Is is the eye autofocus always on point or like, for me, I feel I'm, like, 90% happy with my 5D4 and my telephoto. And, like, maybe they're a little things I'm, like, sometimes I wonder. But I do really love the experience of doing it. And I'm, like, I don't know. It's a, it's a lot of money to do all that. And sometimes I think about it and I'm, like, hey, I'd rather use that money and put it into two or three different trips. And, it, you know, that's usually been my thinking. But... Sometimes you 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 know when you're sitting around in Toronto with nothing to shoot some some days you're just like hmm the R5 or or no nah.
2: I would say if you're happy with what you're shooting stick with it there okay. are advantages um to the the mirrorless system of course and the, you know the biggest thing is that's the direction everything's going and the reason that I made the switch back that direction was just strictly because of the video capability the the hybrid shooting capability, I should say, uh, but if you're happy with the 5D4, that's a very capable camera. It's a very, it's a great camera, actually. Yeah. So, unless you're shooting a lot of birds in flight, I would say there wouldn't no, be don't. a lot of advantages
4: to making that switch, you know. Right okay, now. that's good. You you just saved me a lot of money. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'd only add real quick, if and if. And what it sounds like, one of the key reasons you'd want to switch is because of the eye tracking and that. And if I was you, honestly, I'd wait for some firmware updates or wait for the R1. I, you know, hear the R3 is pretty incredible too. But you, you know, with the 5D Mark IV, you would probably want to go with something with higher megapixels. So you know, but yeah. Anyways, I would, I would, I would agree with Ron. I'd say if you're happy with what you're doing, and that's why you're switching, you know, I'd, I'd consider waiting. And it's an interesting
0: discussion too when you think about it, you know, resources are limited for people. So, you know, do you have to have the newest best gear or do you get an extra trip out of the year or two? And those experiences, I I love how you weigh that. And and for now, I mean, if if what your equipment is, the results you're getting are, are making you happy, then, you know, there's something to be said at the end of the day. It's the experiences that we've had and had privilege to to do in our life, not the camera that's in the in the filing cabinet, right? I mean, it facilitates the results, but it's a, it's a good point that saving a little money can, can create more experiences by spending it elsewhere.
4: Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I find you're never I'm never disappointed if I take a trip instead of putting it into gear. Like it just you know what I mean. Like it just doesn't ever come to that point where like, oh, I wish I'd done the other. Uh, and also, there's a weird reason where um, I could be a little sentimental with gear, with just stuff. And I've had the 5V4 for like three and a half years. And I've just taken it around to a lot of places and captured and been t- done some amazing like things in my life that I really cherish with, you know, the muskox and all that stuff and shot all the foxes. And I've got so many memories with that camera where it, it almost feels like it's like, it's like a part of me. It's a part of my experience. So that's a weird – I've never heard I, – I, people don't really talk about that, but for me it feels like giving something up where it's been through me, with me for so many different things. I don't know if that's, that kind of stuff ever comes up with anyone you talk to, but I don't know. For some reason I feel it sometimes.
2: For sure. I, I had I a tough time parting with the D850, and I know two other guys that are the same. Still mine. <laughs> I still
0: still, haven't got rid of it. (laughs) Yeah, still using it. It's an extension, right? Yeah, the R5, I'm enjoying the capabilities of the R5 and the challenge of learning this intricate system, but the 850 is still my extension. I mean, I hope the R5 gets to that point. And I think in an ideal world, if everybody had, for those people that can afford it, you know, and do the trips, great. But it, it, you know, it's not always required. So I'm just glad that came up for the sake of the podcast and, and listeners that way, because it's not always gear is, is great. If it, if it keeps you safer um, makes a trip more successful and even whether it's clothing or boots or camera gear, but it's all about the experience. So that's the first thing to embrace.
4: Yeah, definitely. The very, other, there.
2: The other advantage to waiting is buy them next year when the, everybody's switching to the R3 and the R1 and right, it's half price, <laughs> you
4: know. It's just going to be cheaper. That's right. That's a good point. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. I mean, everything I've bought has been used anyway. So exactly. You just kind of look for deals and stuff. But I mean, I always, for me, I always, before the body, I kind of looked at what the lens and what was the ideal lens for me. And then I kind of figured out what was that. And then like extension, what's the, what's a good body to go along with it. So I'm, I was telling Mark out in the Rockies, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like Jason, man. I give me, I got the f4 400 f4 do version two telephoto. I need, I love the low light capability and the, the, the foreground and background separation. And it's like to me, that's like to me, that's kind of what I love about it. And the camera body, hey, you could, you know, use anything in the last five years and ten years and probably get good results with like a lens that gets you what you want.
3: Yeah, we have a friend of the show, Kelly. He's been on before, Kelly Ulmer. He actually has his very first camera still. And uh, for the very same reasons you mentioned, just for sentimental reasons and the memories it had with it, the experiences he had because of it. And I highly doubt he's going to get rid of his 850 and some of his Nikon gear. He's made the switch to Sony, but I I doubt he'll get rid of much of that. So, I, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to hold on to some of those things if it, you know, if it makes sense to you. I wish I had mine for what
0: I got for them, even the film cameras, some of them, right? I was saying the F5 bodies, I sold two of them, $500 each, but the, the mileage I had on those back in the time for what it was, yeah, that makes total sense to me.
4: So just, so uh, then, I mean, you guys have been, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ron. No, you're directing each other, my bad.
2: You're fine, that happens all the time. <laughs> I was I was just gonna ask, What? Uh, how long have you been shooting now?
4: Um, Four and a half years. Okay. And, and
2: what and half, is, so. for you, being relatively new to photography, what is the most important thing that you have learned or focused on to help you advance the quality of your images?
4: The The most important thing, um, and I hope that's not a cliched answer, but I, I think the more I put myself out there, the more I've quote unquote, good luck that you could, that I find myself having where, you know, sometimes I have like a very obsessive behavior in a sense of like, if I really am into something, like I'm into it. So like, I I would just putting yourself out there all the time. And like a lot of the Fox photos and everything that I've have, I wouldn't have nearly any of that if I went even half the time. You know what I mean? And like it had to be the amount of times I was out there. And hey, like I totally admit, like sometimes luck plays into it. Like it really lucked out that it was close to me. But, you know, and you just have to wake up early and kind of put in your work. And that that to me was the biggest thing because I um I always felt because I as growing up, I was like an artist. I used to paint, oil paint, sketch and all that. So for me, I always had a little bit, I always had creative like vision and I, for some reason, I had a little bit of what I always thought felt looked good aesthetically. And that came a little naturally. So for me, it was just getting out there and giving myself that opportunity to capture what I was sort of envisioning was really helped me. So I was kind of lucky in that way where I had so many years of training of just like getting like mental preparation of just like what I, what's creative and like what's good framing and like what. What happens when stuff is like on the top left versus bottom right? Or like, what if it's dead center? But if it's up top, like all those things were already kind of naturally ingrained in me. So for me, the biggest thing I found help was just getting out there as many times as possible.
2: I think that's well, well said, good information. I, that's why Mark's got his 10 day rule. I think when life permits, I think I'm changing it. I'm changing a
0: 21 day rule. I'm sure you are. (laughs) Ah, right? Just the more you can and and yeah, that's the the most recent trip I did was a month long and it's longer than virtually all the trips I've done as far as one continuous trip and the opportunity to observe behavior, to document it in, in all kinds of different compositions in a variety of light, in a variety of habitats all unfolded purely due to the amount of time I was out there obviously i mean it happens with all of us and and that you know consistency will also breed good luck it, so that's a that's a strong answer i like it first i mean i ever it makes sense to everybody if you're not out there you don't see it you can only see so much from the couch
3: yeah nan might be able to see some foxes from his couch though so
1: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and Right, yeah. <laughs>
3: for those watching on YouTube, they
0: have that the privilege of seeing that image. You know, and foxes are such photogenic, naturally photogenic, clean animals for the most part. And I a cross fox to me, I mean, there's hardly anything more visually striking than a the cross fox color morph of, of a red fox. I mean, they all are. But when I see one of them, I'm, I had it's only I've seen a number of them, but in. 25 to 30 years, I've only photographed two or three and one was recently and and everything else stopped when that fox waited long enough to pose. Right. So I feel it.
4: Yeah. Cross foxes are incredible. Like I've, I've been fortunate enough to see a handful of them as well. And you're right. Like everything stops. It's like, okay, we gotta, we gotta look at this because this is something unique and yeah, they're, you know, they, they kind of look like uh, foxes, like what, and if like a fox and a raccoon like mixed together, like they have like the colorway of the raccoon mixed with the fox, and it looks like a fox, so it's cool, yeah. Yeah, I think all of
3: us talk about, you know, foxes, red foxes in snow. I mean, that's what always on my on the top of my hit list when I go spend time in Yellowstone in the winter. I mean, it and there's a lot of times it just doesn't happen, you know, but. So when it does happen, it's pretty pretty awesome. So yeah, I mean it's always at the top of my list. They are very photogenic, and I'll, I will say that you have you have done what's where, how am I trying to say this? You have done them justice. Let me put it that way. Your photos are amazing.
0: <laughs> well, let's let's meet up in Algonquin sometime, maybe this winter, to try for foxes. And if you're game, maybe a interior canoe trip next spring or summer for a couple of nights to hang out and talk photography and listen to loons and and howl at the moon
4: that sounds awesome mark a little portage trip in algonquin i'm down for that
0: a little yeah i have friends at the portage trips they, they tend to get longer and longer but I'm, I'm planning to have a couple of shorter ones this year just for pure relaxation but it's, it's just a couple of portages in and it's a whole different world of just the wilderness the feel of it the, the pristine quietness, and then also what you see from my experience there. I mean, it's, it's the same anywhere. I mean, there's so, uh, as far as destinations that people know about, that people travel to, to see wildlife, to experience fall colors, to see the mountains, the highways, the paved roads, you know, have a lot of tourism, but once you take a few steps off, it's amazing how quiet things can get, or portages off, I should say, sorry.
4: Have you, uh, have you ever seen any, uh, any Eastern wolves in your portaging? Endeavors there?
0: Not many. No, I know there's been a couple hanging around. I I've never I'm trying to think back. I've had opportunities to photograph them near Algonquin, but I've never photographed them in Algonquin. So, and I've seen them, but yeah, that's something I I hope to. And just following social media, the joys and thrills, and temptations of of that. You see other people's wonderful images of either time well spent or good luck and there there's been some in the past year for sure up there that are more visible than have been for for many years it seems
4: exactly I don't know if that's the prevalence of social media people posting more from Algonquin or not but it does seem like the last year or two there's been more sightings I mean I I've seen a a few of them over the last couple years but never like any really good didn't never got any good like amazing photos out of anything but just seeing them in in the dark and stuff is pretty awesome but yeah, I think they're I think they're rebounding a bit their population from what I gather. Or what I guess I guess.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know what their numbers are right now either, but uh I do know people are having good luck seeing them and at times photographing them. But it's always the right place, the right time, the right angle, the right light, all those variables. But hope to.
4: Yeah, that's, th- that's, there was that's one
0: a, that's a good purpose for a future trip.
4: Yeah. And there was, uh, there was one out there that a lot of people were photographing, but uh, I think it had been fed, unfortunately. So it was hanging out by a lot of uh, the trailheads and stuff. So it's the same one. There's a lot of them. You see it, it. It looks like it has like a little beard, like in like a gray marking underneath the white. It looks like it has a beard, like it's been fed. So hopefully, hopefully it's not happening anymore. But you know, that's the, I guess that's the unfortunate side of wildlife photography as well
0: well you know in that to summarize that you know you you very well could be right and it's not a result of wildlife photography as much as it's just you know there're a million people go there for fall foliage and not all for better for worse well for worse in this case clearly not all people understand they're not educated necessarily unless somebody has told them that this is a bad move it's like you'll, you get people have never seen this opportunity never seen this wildlife driving there to see colors and all of a sudden they're being approached because of the exposure this animal's had unfortunately to food and they may do it themselves i mean it's just a matter of education most people would ref- refrain from doing it and i don't i don't tether that to wildlife photography but it does create an opportunity due to the unfortunate habituation where lots of people encounter that animal, photograph it and do so ethically, but it's not ideal because the animal's tolerant for the wrong reasons. And that, that may have been occurring and hopefully it's fine. And for whatever reason, will move off to a different area because it's such an expansive wilderness in Algonquin that won't be around there. I haven't followed in the last four months to know what's happening, but yeah, it's purely education and and you know, we see it all the time. I talked about it on a recent podcast where we were in uh, along the coast and just picking up garbage and, and cleaning things up. It's um, And the importance of just, you know, not leaving anything behind. And not everybody thinks that way, unfortunately, in our society. And it's, again, it's education and, and trying to move people to care more about those ecosystems, whether it's the, the garbage or the animals themselves. And I mean, I I don't I followed this very briefly. Just came up, and it's only because uh, of the the amount of coverage. But and and I don't want to get off track. But I think the grizzly bear 399 was encountering some of that in Yellowstone recently, right? Where she Grand was Teton National or, or,
2: Park. Yep.
0: Sorry, Grand Teton, and getting into some.
2: Well, she was in. She was in more urban areas or more heavily populated areas and they trapped them and two of the cubs now have collars two or three jason i think just two i think it's two of them yeah and uh, so fortunately they headed back north now back into the park and hopefully toward bed but it yeah it it's spooky when they start moving toward town because when they get habituated that's when obviously they have to euthanize and with with her history in the park and the documented history of her in the park and all the cubs that she's successfully raised, it would sure be a shame if, you know, if something like that were to happen and I, or even to have to move her because she just, she knows that park. She, and people know her and she's a good bear. She doesn't have too many problems with people. And so she's, she's a good one to have in the park and you know it's one of those things where speaking of education in that area and we are getting off top off topic a little bit but it's one of those things where they're hoping to have an ordinance or a, in the county where people have to have bear proof trash facilities at their home even it's a little bit of an expense but it would you know it would save a bear or five
0: right and and the animals don't know right it's just it's all part of planet earth it's a different i it's just there's an asphalt road but they'll walk across it and then I'll, if there's an opportunity it can be unfortunate so again just to tie it back into education because it's happened in all in Algonquin park i've known wolves over the decades that have had one or two one or two instances that have a similar storyline and and some haven't been able to live because of that level of habituation so Purely education and, and tolerance with these animals. I won't go any further on that, but it's, it's good you brought it up. Yeah, that
4: was well said.
0: I loved your stories. I mean, seriously, the experiences that you've had in four and a half years of pursuing this passion that we all share, and the quality of your work is off the charts, and, and the originality of it. The fact that you embraced urban wildlife and kept the fire going, the passion, the fuel, and, and not only that, but, but immerse yourself in a calm enough state to just get to know this Fox family and document this, the world still, again, I I don't want to be repetitive, but this planet earth, it's still Toronto is still planet earth, right? They found a home there and you, and you documented that in a way that most people wouldn't have seen or thought or put the effort in to do so that plus the ambition and, and the adventurous spirit you have. thanks thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing that with us today.
4: No problem. Thank you guys. It was a pleasure to to come here and, and chat chat it up with you guys.
2: Yeah, we already have the title for the the title for the write up, Adventurous Anand Ayer. <laughs> there you go
0: <laughs> So you check out can check out Anand's work. There'll be a link on our show notes at wildandexposed.com to his instagram page it's anand underscore ire and you can also watch today's episode on youtube if you're not already please follow us along on instagram on facebook at wild i'm not sure jason when this baby's gonna air do we have any idea
3: about that just quickly it'll probably be sometime in december
0: probably right around
3: christmas time so
0: Alright, so what I was going to talk about was the shop, the store on WildAndExposed.com for Christmas gifts. But it might be too tight a time, but everybody likes to start the new year with a resolution. And what better way than a nice hoodie or, or winter beanie with Wild and Exposed on it? Food for thought, easy, easy to find, easy shopping. We've all worn the stuff, wear the stuff, ordered the stuff ourselves and love it. Something to think about and it helps to support our podcast and our efforts here at Wild and Exposed. Jason, Ron, and Ann, it's been a pleasure. It's great to see you guys talk about wildlife photography, hear about adventures. Until next time, everybody, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.
3: We got our windows down, driving down the 405. to make it someday nothing's gonna get in our way we will be the biggest band in town. round around the world we'll go